Hello, welcome to Taking the Universe Around the World. I'm Robin Ince and these are my tour diaries of travelling around the world with Brian Cox with our Horizons show. Last week we got as far as Philadelphia and Philadelphia, like so much of America, because I was such a movie obsessed child, teenager and then adult, every city is attached to some kind of filmic memory and, and also unlike the way that England is very often filmed which is a kind of mythical England it's like the first time that you go to Manhattan you look down the streets and you go oh yeah this is what it looked like in the movies and for Philadelphia of course the importance there is the movie uh, Philadelphia uh, by Jonathan Demme Jonathan Demme who's such a, a great filmmaker is also thanks to uh, Streets of Philadelphia that I realised I've been a fool not to love Bruce Springsteen wasting away so uh, anyway this is where our diary starts it starts in philadelphia and it was it was a good day as well because the day ended uh, or at least drew to uh, kind of late afternoon when we were on the freeway and we were just going past the turn off for jersey city and i love seeing a proper roadside billboard and this one just said shackled by lust jesus sets you free so anyway this is what happened from Philadelphia. We wake up in Philadelphia. Last time we were here, Brian and Steph, trainer and friend, ran up the art gallery steps and had their photographs taken with the Sylvester Stallone statue. Then we found a pleasant little hill to box each other. I didn't risk running up the steps as I'd recently spent a large amount of money having my problematic teeth straightened. And knowing that I'm clumsy, I didn't want to risk knocking them out after all that effort. Boxing is safe, though, as there is a strict rule of not the face. Not that my face matters, but Brian's looks lovely on a book cover, and a flattened face may affect sales not merely of his books, but also, obviously, of tour tickets. So we make sure that his dimensions remain intact. This was also the only time that I've ever visited an art gallery in jogging trousers or jogging bottoms. I don't really know. They, they still feel like a very alien form of trouser for me. I felt quite incongruous, but needs must when there is a world-beating Marcel Duchamp exhibition, and there is in Philadelphia. Today, though, I see no urinals, though I do contemplate my hotel toilet as I flush it. Up on the 25th floor, I'm struck by how remarkable it is that high buildings can just flush our shit away and we barely contemplate it, while many across the world live in such unsanitary conditions and struggle for clean water. It reminds me of Slavos Žižek on different attitudes to excremental excess. He said, an ambiguous contemplative fascination, a wish to get rid of it as fast as possible, a pragmatic decision to treat it as ordinary and dispose of it in an appropriate way. It is easy for an academic at a round table to claim that we live in a post-ideological universe, but the moment he visits the lavatory after the heated discussion, he is again knee-deep in ideology. There's no time for any art or boxing on this visit to Philadelphia. We're straight in the van and off to Manhattan. We pass a sign for Sakaukasa. Is it Sakaukasa? I'm going to say Sakaukasa. Uh, 
but I might be wrong. You can correct me later on. And, of course, that reminds me of another film, which is The Return of the Caucasus 7, which was uh, an early piece of work by the director and script Dr John Sayles, who is enormously underrated and uh, went on to make Brother from Another Planet and Lone Star and Passion Fish. I'm a huge fan of Passion Fish. Uh, It's a beautiful film and also has one of the funniest lengthy dialogue scenes in which an actor dwells on how much she struggled to find the right way of expressing the line I didn't ask for the anal probe in a zero budget alien movie. Once in Manhattan Brian is keen to move into the open air. The first four days have seen us caged up and hunched and now we can stretch so we jog around Central Park. Yeah even I jog around Central Park in my jogging bottoms or jogging trousers. Not all of Central Park we just do a few of the tangents of Central Park and then eventually we get up to that famous reservoir wire fence which still contains all the echoes of Dustin Hoffman's sweat-heavy panting from the Marathon Man jogging sessions. Later on we also in Central Park discuss the increase in quantum entanglement that is needed while at the same time decreasing the stage time. We stretch out with coffee and the potential of a cookie and continue our thoughts on how to end the show. Looking at the blossom, I tell Brian that for the last 28 years, all of the blossom that I ever see is always the blossomest blossom. Ever since I watched Dennis Potter's final interview 28 years ago, one of Channel 4's high points in its 40-year career as far as I'm concerned. But the nowness of everything is absolutely wondrous. And if people could see that, you know, there's no way of telling you. Uh, You have to experience it, you know. But the glory of it, if you like, the comfort of it, the reassurance, if not that I'm interested in reassuring people, you know, bugger that. The, the truth, the fact is that if you see the present tense, boy, do you see it. And boy, can you celebrate it, you know? This is what we need for the end of the show. That image which will become inescapable for the audience once they've heard it whether it will strike them every time they see the stars or every time they see an entanglement of adapter wires in their drawer. Once, of course, a life could be measured out by coffee spoons. Now it appears it can be measured out in how many cables from long-forgotten devices wrap around you. I think we should probably be buried with them in some way, perhaps chained to them, wrapped around us, mummified by cable adapters. On the last tour... I appeared near the end of the show to read a poem I'd written on the fragility of our moments in time, expressed through a story of building dens in the woods with my son. You don't need a storyteller now. Your bedtime is almost autonomous, but still one snuggly hug for safety from the Sandman. Is today the day? Is this our final den? We dragged the sticks and we rolled the logs and we made jokes about passing walkers with those weird-shaped dogs and you found our furniture, a worn and mossy tyre, and I warned you of all the dangers to that leaf-hidden, rusty, rusty barbed wire and then, damp-bottomed, we sat and viewed our architectural feet. I phone-filmed your pride for the archives of things we've done, the woodland adventures of father and son. Some days, walking hand in hand, I secretly mourn for the days that are not yet gone, those, those days that seem like a shepherd's sketch for an A.A. Milne where every beach is a post-war postcard, the blue, too blue, in my recall. Your freedom is necessity, but not yet. 
not yet. Just wait a little bit. Let's pond dip for skaters with a net. Let's build a sofa train, a kick around, a Lego piece found by my bare foot. Let's read Peanuts at Dusk and Calvin and Hobbes. Let's dig and splash and play and mime laser deaths in outer space. Let's race. And then I'll let you go. And I'll kick those twigs alone. But not yet. Not yet. One more day. So that's how that show would get near to its conclusion. For this tour, Brian just said, oh, just write another poem. Yeah, that's all, just write another poem. I put it to the back of my mind, knowing that if I looked too hard for one, I would never find it. Shortly after a long conversation I had with a man called Jamie about ADHD, a conversation which had brought things into sharp focus that had really been muddily and foggily hanging around me, and also on my way to one of my favourite music festivals, Beautiful Days, I sat on Wembley Central Station platform, and a poem turned up in one fell swoop, and that is the one that I read near the end of this show. By chance, or perhaps it was because it was in my subconscious, with no sense of deliberate design, the poem fitted easily into the show. Brian then reverse-engineered elements of the poem into his talk, and now hopefully people will see the connections that run through it. My favourite feedback on it so far is, it was the best antidote I've experienced to the existential dread of the vastness of space. And that's what I was aiming to do. So when every now and again you get that perfect reaction, when you have so much time to listen to the negative critical voices, sometimes when I hear things like that I go, just enjoy that acceptance for a while. On the way back from the jog we pass the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I think of Robin Williams. He used to busk outside the museum when he was in Juilliard. We talk of how much we would have loved to have had him on Monkey Cage. He was a stand-up hero to me, but I find it hard to watch that stand-up now. Fortunately, I have no such problems with his films. The Fisher King is probably my favourite New York movie. I think it's Terry Gilliam's masterpiece. There's three things in this world you need. Respect for all kinds of life, a nice bowel movement on a regular basis, and a navy blazer. Did you ever hear the story of the Fisher King? No. It begins with the king as a boy, having to spend the night alone in the forest to prove his courage so he can become king. Now, while he's spending the night alone, he's visited by a sacred vision. Out of the fire appears the Holy Grail, symbol of God's divine grace. We find a restaurant that Brian hung out at when he was at the Rockefeller Institute in 1999. He is pleased to see that it still exists and even more pleased with the wine list. We sit outside and eat fennel. A stoned and broken man on a bicycle stops by and laughs at his reflection for ten minutes. We're disconcerted. It's uncertain what you should do. Whenever I see things like that and humans struggling like that, I just wonder, what was their childhood like? What did they imagine they were going to be? And how did they end up here? And how can we find some kind of solution to the strangeness and frequency with which human beings end up crushed, confused or utterly lost in cities? The day ends with me watching In the Court of King Crimson. There is much talk about how the band can create a peak experience for those drawn to them. I've only seen them once, and all sense of the passing of time was obliterated. There was also much 
about Bill Riflin, a drummer with Ministry, R.E.M. and King Crimson, eventually moving to the keyboards for them. He is a playful presence, despite, perhaps because, he is in pain and dying from cancer, having already had much of himself removed. Five milligrams of melatonin and then sleep, only broken by brief moments of wakefulness at 4.30am and 7am. I'm determined to relax, until of course Brian calls me towards the next jogging session. Day two in New York. But the reason I decided to go to New York was because I'd seen Iggy Pop and I thought I had seen God. That's not me, though I can see how people, if they see Iggy Pop, have thought that they've seen God. That's from the brilliant biography Widow Basquiat. A friend of mine recently commented on Iggy Pop's birthday that Iggy Pop's penis was probably the only penis that he'd seen nearly as much as his own. So, we're in Manhattan. And yesterday, I forgot to boast about another of my minor victories against my milksop Englishness and anxiety. We're staying in a very nice Manhattan hotel. No roaches and $12 if you want to drink some water. But my room backed onto the lift shafts. I ponder the grazing of my walls. They go up and down and up and down, and I don't like to make a fuss. But I decided I wouldn't make a fuss. I would just go down and say, I need to change my room. I didn't pause and say, I just wondered if it might be possible, but you see, I I don't sleep very well, and I, I just said... I need to change my room. There was a very, very small amount of procrastination, perhaps even prevarication. But no, then it was done. Straight in there. A brief uncertainty from the reception desk, but I looked like I had intent and would not be dissuaded, and so I found myself in a wonderfully quiet room. Devoid of clues of tourists coming and going, finding out their key card wouldn't get them to the floor they'd hoped to go to. It was quiet. In Central Park, we saw a four-year-old and a six-year-old, these are approximate guesses, building their field of dreams, knocking around a baseball with remarkable confidence and energy, and frequently in our direction. This is one of my paranoias, should a ball in any park of any size come towards me and people say, can you kick it back or throw it back? Because, as I know with my hypervigilance, I will somehow manage to throw it behind my head or kick it and miss it and fall over. Um, In fact, I would highly recommend, if it can still be found, the wonderful comedian uh, Will Smith, English comedian, who also wrote some of the uh, Paddington films as well. Posh Boy Will Smith was how he was uh, known to try and show that it was not the other Will Smith so uh oh well there's probably actually a lot of Will Smith but the other comedian Will Smith they certainly were very very different in their styles uh Will Smith posh boy Will Smith used to open his act by saying I'm sorry there's been a slight mix-up in the booking I'm not meant to be here but unfortunately Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Will Smith is actually now accidentally giving a talk to the Oxford University Chess Club it's all in the delivery Go and look at his work. He was one of my favourite comedians when we used to work together in the 90s. Anyway, Monday was a day of cannibalism. Brian realised that his dues for the Explorers Club on East 70th were severely overdue. In fact, so overdue 
that he was going to have to reapply. Fortunately, a phone call sorted it out, and he was back in the fold of astronauts and Arctic explorers. And we were given a tour of the building, which is built from remarkable relics, roof beams from Captain Cook's ship, meeting room tables where Teddy Roosevelt planned the Panama Canal, chairs from the Medicis, and canvas from the wings of the Wright Brothers plane. Every corner has an artefact representing the adventurous impulse. We are shown a painting of an 1863 expedition which went terribly wrong and ended in cannibalism. One of the explorers was desperate to be killed, so committed crime after crime, each time imagining he would then be shot for insurrection. But it just never happened, and on the third attempt it was eventually agreed he would stand before the firing squad, and he insisted that after he had been shot he would be eaten by them. As he stood before the guns, they failed to fire due to the intense cold, so he went over to them and warmed the triggers with his own breath. Quite a tale. Probably true, and if not, I'll accept it as true. We were shown a painting of Peter Freuchen. Trapped in a blizzard, he burrowed down, but the intensity of the weather led to him being buried under six feet of snow. He recalled that frozen dog excrement was solid enough to become a chisel, and so defecated and then used his own frozen stool to strike his way out. On another occasion of desperation, he decided the best way to survive would be to eat his gangrenous leg. It's fair to say that such people, I think anyway, have amygdalas that are far less active than my own fearful almond of grey matter. There is a beautiful picture of him in the most incredible fur coat next to his wife, a very small but rather brilliant editor of Vogue. We managed to fit in a run-up Madison Avenue to fetch a coffee where, as usual, Brian looked like Sebastian Coe and I looked like Jimmy Carter. I was also relieved to see that I'd just missed the New York Antiquarian Book Fair. That could have been quite a bankrupting event. Downtown, Brian was interviewed over Zoom for Star Talk while I began the final copy edit on my next book, which is probably called, in fact I think definitely called, Bibliomaniac and will be available in shops and online from the beginning of October. I'd forgotten how strange the restroom opposite our producer's office is. It is two toilets facing each other. So it's for some kind of strange incontinent romance. I presume it would be down to building regulations that when it was designed they said we have to have two toilets on every floor and when they found out that actually there wasn't quite the space they just said well if we put two toilets in one room that'll be fine that gets a a tick in the box. While Brian worked on new images for the upcoming shows I took the opportunity to wander to Mercer Books one of my favourite New York bookshops. I've had to be coy in my purchases knowing I'm still away for some time. The weighty book about the brilliant cartoonist Will Eisner stayed on the shelf. Sadly, they didn't have the biography of Anne Sexton that was on my mind, but I came away with a couple of issues of Book Forum, a comic book by Daphne Gottlieb and Diana DeMassa, Jokes and the Unconscious, and a collection of essays by writers on comics, Give Our Regards to the Atom Smashers. In the evening, we eat in the same restaurant as the night before, as it was excellent, and we're saving most of our adventurous spirit for new ideas on stage, rather than from the kitchen. We're joined by my friend Elsa. Last time I saw her, I was in a small town on Long Island, not far from what might be considered to be Gatsby's West Egg. But it was off-season, so it was affordable for her to live, and I remember forcing her to buy spray cheese, as I'd never eaten spray cheese, and I will never eat spray cheese again. 
We try not to dwell on how long ago it was since we last met, but it's close to half a lifetime ago. The problem with half lifetimes is the first half is so much longer than the second half. The second half really seems to pick up speed. And I return to my New York book for this visit, Madame Basquiat. It's a sparse yet also full and intense exploration of the great artist Jean-Michel Basquiat through the eyes of his muse and lover Suzanne. At one point he takes around the Museum of Modern Art and says, look, there are no black men in museums. Try counting. I'm not sure how much the sertraline is taking the edge off this tour, but I think it's blunted some of the barbs. So I take my pill and off we go to another day. we finally reached that time. Tonight is the New York show and this is the biggest show that we've ever done in New York and very exciting for me because it's the Beacon Theatre where I've seen various specials performed by George Carlin who is another of my stand-up heroes. Pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine months. After that they don't want to know about you. They don't want to hear from you. No nothing. No neonatal care, no daycare, no head start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you're pre-born, you're fine. If you're preschool, you're fucked. fucked. Before I go too far into this particular diary entry, I should mention that it was slightly contentious when I put some of this up on Facebook. So I'm going to talk you through the contentious moment, which comes right at the start. So what I wrote was, walking down Park Avenue, I see five or six women with a Brazilian. Now, that was the starting point where people went, hang on a minute, that's very, very offensive. Now, I was actually aiming for misdirection. I'll tell you what, I'll give you the whole context and then we'll go back to it. Walking down Park Avenue, I see five or six women with a Brazilian. I'm not sure how you define a Brazilian, but for me it is a tightness in the face that resembles the facial plastic surgery Catherine Hellman has in Terry Gilliam's Brazil. So that's what I thought I was doing. What I thought was that people who would read my diary entry would think, hang on a minute, Robin wouldn't normally write about something like that. And then in the next sentence, they would go, oh, I see, it's another of his filmic references to the work of Terry Gilliam. Anyway, that was my intention. And... uh, I apologise for any offence caused, but it really was just meant to be a bit of misdirection. Anyway, now I've explained myself, uh, let me explain more. There, There were these five women. All of them had that kind of thinning and smoothing of features, an amorphous identity topped off by all having the same small groomed dog. It also reminds me, of course, of John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. and the magnificent plastic surgery there with, I think, Bruce Campbell, as far as I remember, as the Surgeon General. We have our first and last diner breakfast in New York. I never used to feel that I was in New York until I'd smeared some blue jam from a small pot on rye bread. Our breakfast companions are Andy and Sophs Nyman. Andy is in New York appearing in the long-delayed and much-revered production of Hangmen. Andy says that we must visit the Magic Castle when we're in LA, and then relays a tragic and macabre story about the sad death of the magician Daryl Easton. Easton was meant to be performing in one of the performance rooms, the parlour. As showtime approached, no one could find him. They looked all over, they were rummaging through the Props backstage and front stage, checking behind the boxes of illusions. They they managed to push the hanging prop dummy out of the way, but he just was not to be seen. It was then that a horrible truth was realised. The prop dummy that they'd pushed away was not 
a prop dummy. It was Darrell Easton. He had taken his own life. In some reports, much was made of East. Take two. In some reports, much was made of Easton being a master of rope tricks. He was known as a happy-go-lucky guy. It seems few knew that behind his public bonhomie, there was a deep sadness. We continue to breakfast, talking about the importance of being able to speak out and the importance of also being ready to listen, which is a good chance for me to plug again Catherine Mannix's fantastic book, Listen, which is about just that. But it was ultimately a happy breakfast, even though we still touched on sad themes. Brian goes to meet another explorer at his club, and I go back to the hotel room to continue going through the copy edits of my next book. I walk across Central Park to the Beacon Theatre, passing a man on a bench by strawberry fields who's strumming Blackbird while people nod along and think Beatlesy thoughts. The Beacon has an impressive lift signed by many of the performers who have stood on the stage and the lift attendant obviously measures me up as I walk into that lift wondering whose signatures would fascinate me most. He is quick to point out that it is signed by Hulk Hogan on the ceiling lamp and also Mike Tyson. I actually search for George Carlin's signature, but the palimpsest nature of the steel walls may mean he's lost in a multitude of sharpie flourishes. The theatre is beautiful and ornate, and one of Jerry Seinfeld's favourites. It has columns laden with swirling mythic figures and decorative flourishes. I don't really think England has anything quite like this. What a movie palace this once was. If I'd found there were Litzer organ, I would have insisted that Brian rise up from the depths playing When You Wish Upon a Star and pointing to projected constellations. But he has a new toy. He is now able to draw equations on the screen and this makes him very, very happy and gives him a conviction that we can now cut the show by 20 minutes. I'm yet to be convinced. As befits a physicist, the concept of time is malleable in his hands. Due to union rules, when the stage goes dark, all activity must cease. The supper break is sacrosanct. Perish the thought of the repercussions should you open a flight case at such times. We return to the hotel and prepare. There's an extra level of edginess when performing in Manhattan, especially on that stage where Carlin stood. We have a few guests backstage, including my college friend Elsa and one of my favourite singer-songwriters, Laura Cantrell, who I first heard singing the fantastic song Oh No No No, I'm Not the Trembling Kind, which you should go and listen to now. In fact, the last time I saw her was at the Union Chapel in London. She'd been on a mission that day to find as many packets of jelly babies as possible because at that point her daughter was a big Beatles fan and had read that Ringo Starr's favourite sweets were jelly babies, an elusive item in Manhattan. She brings along her pal Rachel Liebling, who made the landmark documentary about bluegrass music, High Lonesome. I put it on my list of movies for the tour bus. The New York audience is as good as we could hope for, energetic, engaged... Also, Brian's new magic equation doodler and edits really do cut the show by 20 minutes, and it's now in the Goldilocks zone of show length. It's a satisfying night, and we stay backstage and have a drink and some salted crackers. I can worry at times that I might be extraneous to the show, 
sometimes it can seem strange going from being a big thing in the little shows that I do to the little thing in the big shows that Brian does. For this reason, it's encouraging when Richard Garriott, president of the Explorers Club, who's been to both the North Pole, the South Pole and into space, remarks how important he thought our interactions were. It shuts up again my malevolent demon homunculus for a while. Widow Basket is the end of my New York books. Before I go to sleep, I turn to the novel for New Haven, Bernard Wolfe's Limbo, as recommended by Neil Gaiman. In the aftermath of an atomic war, a new international movement of pacifism has arisen. Hang on a minute, I've told you all this before. Anyway, I begin, and it's very, very good, made even better by the fact it has a foreword by Harlan Ellison. I'm sure you have all seen his brilliant monologue, Pay the Writer, or Dreams with Sharp Teeth. Just what rage that man had. I get so angry about this because you're undercut by all the amateurs. It's the amateurs who make it tough for the professionals. Because when you act professional, these people are so used to getting it for nothing and for mooching and for being able to pass off this bullshit. I mean, they don't even send you a copy of the DVD. You know, you have to call them and say, where's the DVD? Well, it's been out for six months. You know, we'd have, you could go to the store and buy it. You could go to the store and buy it, motherfucker. You go to the store and buy it. You send me the goddamn DVD now or I'm going to come down to your come down to your office and I'm going to burn it to the ground. How about that? Well, you don't have to get mean about it. Yeah, I do have to get mean about it. Six months since the damn thing came out. The next morning, we're still high from the success of the Manhattan show. It really was wonderful to play the Beacon Theatre, and we were even allowed to sign the lift. Obviously, I did it right in the bottom right-hand corner, not anywhere near Hulk Hogan. I wouldn't want to get in the way of that. Later on today, as we drive to New Haven, I'll see another of my favourite billboards, which apparently is actually a very common advert. Your wife is hot. Fairfield Pools is here to help. First of all, Brian goes off for breakfast with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I lie about doing some writing in bed. Spare time on tours can be eviscerated by the background hum of the evening show. It's a shadow that needles your concentration, if shadows can needle your concentration. I don't really know if they can. Look, I'll I'll leave you to see if that metaphor is deeply, deeply flawed. You have to make yourself do something, otherwise you do nothing. So I decided to go to Central Park for the last time on this tour. I sit on a rock and read today's artist's manifesto. As I cross Fifth Avenue, I was thinking about Kurt Vonnegut. Indianapolis is currently one of the lowest selling gigs on the tour, but I am still greatly looking forward to it as it gives me a chance to visit the Vonnegut Museum and Library. I open the manifesto book and look at random and I find myself facing a manifesto inspired by Kurt Vonnegut. Synchronicity or chance, you decide whether you're a Jungian or not. It's by the Australian radical nonconformist artist Mike Brown. It's called I Don't Know What to Think About Anything, open brackets, It Don't Matter No How, close brackets. This is an arty exhibition somewhat in the telegraphic schizophrenic manner of the arts of the planet Tralfamador, where the flying saucers come from. If you've read any of the novels of Kurt Vonnegut Jr., you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't read any Vonnegut, you're an ignoramus ill-equipped to survive the 20th century. Peace, anyhow. This synchronicity reminds me of the night before at the Beacon. I'd got as far in my book copy edits as a quote by Emily Dickinson that's carved on Jean Rees's grave. When I start talking to Laura Cantrell's friend Rachel, 
she begins to tell me all about Emily Dickinson's house. When I mention this coincidence, she seems unsure if Good Morning Midnight is the work of Dickinson, which puts me in a brief panic, because if that reference is wrong, what else is wrong in my new book? Fortunately, we treble check, and it really is a Dickinson quote, just one that Rachel didn't know. But then again, a little panic is good for pre-show adrenaline. Uh, Not that I'm often short of it. Good morning, Midnight. I'm coming home. Day got tired of me. How could I of him? Neither Brian and I have performed in New Haven before, though Brian gave a talk in a school nearby which turned out to be the location of the Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams taps us on the shoulder yet again on this tour. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. Though I mentioned before that I find it hard to watch his stand-up, there is one record that I can still listen to, the first one that I managed to get hold of. It's called Reality, What a Concept, and I can play it in my head whenever I want because the grooves from that much-played vinyl copy are now carved into my brain. Here it is, my first poem. Red sand between my toes, summer vacation in outer space. That was a Martian haiku. (laughs) Now a simpler poem, a poem written on acid entitled Abiyar. 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 Eve Arden, be blah. <laughs> Those of you who understood it went, wow, reality, what a concept. But I've also grown even fonder of those melancholy films, whether it is Dead Poet Society or One Hour Photo or Bobcat Goldthwaite's fantastic World's Best Dad. Driving out of New York, we pass another vast cemetery where the dead are buried on inauspicious land between light industry and clapboard houses. Once in New Haven, Brian has the afternoon nap that keeps him young, and I embrace the flaneur life that keeps me old. Having skipped breakfast, I find the Book Trader Cafe and have a coffee and a bagel while looking at books about Anthony Perkins, that one's split image, and also one called The Living and the Undead. The barista is so dry it is hard to tell if he is living in perpetual irony or speaking a perpetual authentic truth. He asked me to explain my t-shirt, which is illustrative of bubble universes. I try my best, but use a little slight of mouth to get away with it. Nearby, elderly friends tell stories of cleaning their furnaces after the winter and the work of Francois Truffaut. My Brows leads to an anthology of film noir reviews by Barry Gifford, author of the Sailor and Lula stories that led to David Lynch's Wild at Heart, a couple of Ray Bradbury collections, that Gregory Waller book that I've mentioned before on The Living and the Undead, and the 2017 book of non-required reading, plus an anthology of stories from The Moth. Tonight's theatre is the Schubert. It's a pretty little theatre, and backstage is decorated with artists' interpretation of the posters for the productions that have been there in the past, signed by all of those involved. And the green room is decorated with black and white promotional pictures of previous stars who have performed there, including Jamie Farr from TV's MASH, Ben Vereen, Dame Edna Everidge, and Robert Goulet, who's not really that known in the UK, but Robert Goulet, well, there is a lot of Robert Goulet here. Don't go changing To try and please me You never let me down before 
Brian's pal Richard comes backstage before the show and, though not an actor, mentions he was in a movie with Robin Williams. Using my finest instincts, using age, weight and background, I surmise it was the 1986 film Club Paradise. I'll be stopping by the Club Paradise later. There's some wonderful music. We have other plans. I bet you do, you party Cossack. Be careful. Somewhere on this island there's a doll with your face on it. Voodoo ta-ta. Take care. I'm correct. He tells us about the marvel of watching Williams interact with Peter O'Toole. Good oh, gracious man, are you still here? You remind me of a sort of strange vegetation that just popped up and now we can't get rid of why it seems that you've been here for a year. Oh, it's just been five months, but Tempest really fugits when you're having fun. Williams would improvise in every scene. O'Toole would not, but he always knew exactly where to come in. The show passes without a hitch and again is 20 minutes shorter than it was the weekend before. It's tighter and now we think at least that we've found our stride. We sit in the green room drinking wine and eating pizza under the watchful eyes of the monkeys Davy Jones, David Cassidy and Anne B. Davis from the Brady Bunch. Oh, and of course another picture of Robert Goulet. Thank you very much for listening. That is the end of episode two of Taking the Universe Around the World. Uh, in the next episode, we go to Boston and then over the border to Canada. And uh, we have lots of gigs still coming up. Uh, depending on exactly when this goes out, uh, we may well have Indianapolis uh, coming up. And then also after that, we have Madison and uh, we have Chicago and we have Minneapolis and on and on and on Denver, Salt Lake City. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you can support us via Patreon, that is fantastic. And thank you very much to the Cosmic Shambles producer, Trent Burton. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.